Today, we are going to be continuing our series called Seven Letters. And we are looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus actually wrote to these. They were actual cities, actual churches at that time, but Jesus spoke to them, but he's speaking through them to us. And uh, we've made it to this city called Pergamum. And I'm going to say something today that I'm pretty sure all of us or many of us will probably agree with theologically, but if we're honest, we struggle with it practically and in practical ways, many times on a daily basis. And so here's the statement that I believe many of us are going to agree with theologically, but struggle with practically. And here it is. God's ways are best. How many of you guys agree with, like theologically, we agree with that. And, and I, I even know that right now there's probably some pushback in some of you that would say something like this. Like, I know God's ways are best. At the deep part of me, I know that God's ways are the best. I know that even if I don't understand them, God's ways are best. Even if they're hard, God's ways are best. I understand. And at a deep, deep place in me, I really have it settled that God's ways are best. And, and if that's you, here's, here's the question. Then why are we ever tempted? If we've settled it at a deep place, temptation could never enter us. If it's settled at such a deep place that, like, even though we don't understand it, even though, you know, that how could temptation ever have an access point in our life if we have settled it? Which leads me to wonder, maybe we haven't total, totally settled it. Maybe there are still parts of us that don't really believe it. Maybe there's still parts of us that struggle with the idea and knowing that God's ways are best. Maybe there's still part of us that still somehow thinks that our ways might be best. And I'm going to just suggest that the only way temptation can exist in our life is because at some level we haven't settled it that God's ways are best. And so there are parts of us that quite, they're just not there yet. We have to be reminded of that. And in the Bible we can see places where this happens. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you. So God is setting before us choices, life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So he sets out these two choices before us and then gives us the hint at which one to pick. This one's going to be better for you. Why does he have to hint and why does he have to nudge? Because evidently there's some part of us, maybe even at a deep part of us, that still has to be reminded, that still hasn't settled that God's ways are best. We still have to be reminded of choosing the right choice because maybe somewhere even as a believer, our default setting still reverts back to choosing death over life and curse over blessing at areas of our life or temptation over God's ways. Now, there's a story in the Bible involving blessing and cursing, and it actually has to do with the church we're looking at today, but we kind of have to take a run at it. And there's this guy named Balak in the Old Testament, and Balak was watching the children of Israel and the people of God. They were going through, and they were winning battle after battle after battle, and he was starting to get scared that they were going to be run overran too. And so what he does is he calls this prophet, Balaam, who's actually a false prophet, And I don't mean necessarily inaccurate by being false prophet. Just what I mean by that is that he wasn't of God, and God used him. How do you guys know there can still be people who are accurate, 
but they're not of God, and God will even still use them in some way, shape, or form. That's what happened with Balaam. I mean, he, he was a false prophet, not because of inaccuracy. He was actually accurate in a lot of ways, but because he wasn't on God's side. And so there's a famous story of, you know, Balak sends to Balaam to come and to curse the children of Israel. And he wrestles with it for a while, and finally Balaam agrees to come, and he's on his way, and and as he's there, the the angel of the Lord, who we know really is Jesus many times in in the scripture, the angel of the Lord stands and appears in the way, but Balaam can't see that the angel of the Lord is blocking the path. But Balaam's donkey can see the angel of the Lord. And so Balaam's donkey stops in his tracks. And so Balaam is frustrated, and he beats the donkey. And the donkey, you know, this happens three times. He beats the donkey three times. And finally, God empowers a crazy story. God empowers the donkey to speak to Balaam. And the donkey turns around to to Balaam and basically is like, what are you doing? Why are you beating me? And Balaam amazingly responds to the donkey. It's like, well, because, then he starts listing off all this stuff. And that's even more amazing than the donkey talking, is that Balaam speaks back to the donkey as if nothing's going on, right? And then the the donkey makes his case. And you can read it there in in the book of Numbers. The donkey's like, haven't I been a good donkey for you? I mean, uh, all my life, like, I've been a good donkey for you. Why are you doing this now? Finally, God opens Balaam's eyes, and he can see what's going on. Eventually, he goes to go with Balak and to curse the children of Israel. And as he begins to open his mouth to curse the children of Israel, he's not able to curse the children of Israel. All he can do is bless them. And so they try this three times. And every time Balaam tries to curse the children of Israel, God puts a word of blessing in in Balaam's mouth. Until we get to Numbers chapter 24, verse 10, and Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've blessed them these three times. Now, what does that have to do with the church we're looking at today? Well, the church in Pergamum, they had stayed faithful under persecution, as we will see, but they had allowed the ways of Balak and Balaam to infiltrate their church. Now, we'll see what that is here in a little bit. But basically, it's a mixture in order to pollute their relationship with God. And so even though God ended up turning curses into blessings for for the children of Israel, Balaam found another way to infiltrate the children of Israel, which we will see here in just a moment. But before we get there, let's look at the letter to the church in Pergamum. Let's watch. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Repent, therefore. Revelation 2, 12 through 16. The throne of Satan and where Satan lives are phrases that have been interpreted in various ways, but all linked to pagan worship here at Pergamum. Usually the throne of Satan is connected directly to the Pergamum altar, which was shaped somewhat like a gigantic throne and often associated with Zeus. 
Now, later in the letter, the Christians at the church in Pergamum were reprimanded for the teaching of Balaam, the sacrificing to idols and immorality, all of which are related to paganism. It seems some Christians here were participating in rituals to pagan gods. At the end of the letter, these Christians are called to repent and turn from their evil ways. All right, so that's the letter that's written there. So Balaam couldn't curse the children of Israel. So what did he do? He taught Balak how to get, how to get them in a trap. And he sent the, the daughters of Moab in to entice them. And that they began to compromise and they began to attend feasts that were uh, actually for idolatry and immorality. And that is the way that they got to the Israelites. And this was, in a similar way, things that the church in Pergamum were dealing with. And so that's kind of what happened. And that, that idolatry and immorality is basically the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine uh, or the, the ways of Balaam. And so somewhere along the way, they believed that there was a shortcut to the experiencing the same kind of goodness that you can experience in God. Somewhere along the way, they believed there was a workaround. Somewhere along the way, they, re, they believed there was a, a better way than what they had in God's hands and in God's way. Somewhere along the way, they believed that God's ways weren't best. And because of that, they were infiltrated. They were, there was a mixture. And that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is anything that takes the place of God. Anything, let me just say it even further, anything that's competing with your relationship with God, you're, you're flirting with idolatry. And so they began to have idolatry in their hearts. They began to uh, have immorality in their lives. And as a result of that, there was a mixture. And they said they loved God, but it really wasn't fully true. And so Jesus comes in this letter to Pergamum, and he says, repent. Now, we've talked about repentance the last couple weeks, Right? And, but here it is again. He's talking about it, so we're going to talk about it. We, I'm not going to go over all the same things that we talked about about what repentance is. But let me, let me take a little bit different angle at it. Because we need to repent. There are people in this room, probably every single one of us, that should repent of something, right? But we need to repent of what we've done. Sure, repent if there's immorality in your life. Repent if there's idolatry in your life. If there's anything that's competing with God. Repent of what you've done. But I, I want to take a little different approach with it. We, we need to repent not just of what we've done, but what we've left undone. Because I'm sure that a lot of us can come up with things right now. And, and we've talked about repentance of those things the last couple weeks. I want to take a little different angle. Because I don't want to just deal with symptoms. Let's deal with the root of the problem. Let's do it because a lot of times the things that we've done are just symptoms of a root problem that we have in our lives. And so we can repent of those things that we've done, but we probably need to also repent of some things that we've left undone. Because many times idolatry and immorality will come not just because we desire to fill our life with, with bad and wrong things, but because we've neglected to fill our life with right and good things. And so because we've neglected to do the right and good things, we've allowed a vacuum of sorts to exist in our life. And wherever there's a vacuum in your life, somebody will fill it. 
Whenever there's, have you guys ever been like maybe in a business situation or something like that and, and there's a vacuum, it's like somebody is looking, your boss is looking for a volunteer to head up a project or something and if you leave enough time, it seems like the least qualified person will volunteer for it because they're ready and they will fill that vacuum at any moment, right? They're just ready. So you have to be careful with what vacuums are left and I'm telling you, if you leave a vacuum in your life, Satan will, he'll sign up first to try to fill that vacuum, right? And so many times, idolatry and immorality isn't because we've just had this desire in us to fill our lives with bad and wrong things. It's because we've neglected to fill our lives with the right and good things. And that's what happened to the children of Israel. They left an opening somewhere, and because of that opening, Satan filled it. And so we need to repent of not just what we've done, but what we've left undone. So what are areas of our life that this looks like? Well, uh, we just went to the sin. How many of you guys were at the sin with this yesterday? Oh, that was awesome, right? We went to the sin, this big stadium, you know, and, and the whole thing was about this idea that Jesus talked about in Matthew where he says, as you've done unto the least of, of these, you've done unto me. Well, the, the same thing, we could just reverse that. As you've not done unto the least of these, you've neglected to do for me. And so the sin was all about activating and repenting of the things that we've left undone. Because we can look at our lives right now, and some of you are looking at your life right now, and you're like, oh, I've cleaned up my life. Oh, I'm doing good. And, and you could look, and you could say, there's nothing I need to really repent of of the things that I've done. But are there things we need to repent of that we've left undone in our walk with Jesus? That's what the sin was all about. And by the way, if you're wondering how you can respond to that, We've got opportunities right here in Journey Church. Let me just list off a bunch of opportunities. Meals ministry, and you can go online and check all this stuff out. I'm just going to highlight them along the way. Meals ministry, Harvester's Mobile Food Pantry comes up every month. June 17th, we've got household essential bags outreach. We're filling household items and delivering them to apartment complexes around here. We've got Camp Comcedo that's coming up this summer. They still need several spots for that where you spend a week away serving uh, kids in our city. Uh, Journey foster families, we're collecting gift cards for them and baskets for them to, uh, to bless foster families at Journey. Uh, we've got missionaries. We just talked about some of our missionaries here. We've got Care Portal that supports foster and, and adopt families. We've got uh, several things that are going on. Hillcrest Hope Apartment, back-to-school backpacks coming up. We've got a build day outreach for Sleep in Heavenly Peace. We're actually building beds for people. Uh, Operation Christmas Child. I could just keep going on and on and on of all the things that you could do to activate even just right here in this church. You don't even have to go beyond the walls of this church to go beyond the walls of this church. <laughs> you can just sign up somewhere right now and, and, and deal with some of the things that we've left undone. That's just one area of our life. Now, I'm not going to box you in and say that's all to think about. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit allow that to... Because for some of us, it's as simply as like, I've neglected tithing. I've neglected serving. I've neglected loving my neighbor. I've neglected, you know, witnessing to people around me. I, whatever that is, right? And so we need to activate the undone in our life. Why? It's important. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You know there's a principle here that's so important? And that is, if all you do is focus on not doing wrong things, what's going to happen? You're just going to be thinking about wrong things. But if you can set your mind on the Spirit, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be filling your life with right things. And the more you fill your life with right things, the less wrong things you'll even have to think about. 
So I could put it this way. If we would do the undone, we'd have less to repent of. Is anybody getting this today? I just hope you're getting this because we set our mind on the spirit. What's going to happen? Life and peace is going to come into our life. When you focus on the spirit, the fruit is life. I'll give you examples of this. Maybe in your marriage. Yeah, you can repent of being a jerk, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, I was a jerk. I just didn't, I was uncaring, you know, whatever. And that's repenting of something maybe that you've done. But maybe you need to look at some of the things that you have left undone. Maybe it's like, well, I used to write notes for them. Or I used to leave little things in their lunchbox. Or I need to, used to, you know, do little things around the day or, you know, a phone call or t- whatever it is that's undone. And maybe we need to not, you know, if we would spend more time doing the undone, maybe we'd have less to repent of of the things that we have done. This is, that's, worth, that's worth your price of admission today, guys, which was free, but it's worth your price of admission today just for that one little nugget. And it's all an issue of trust. Do we really trust that God's ways are best? Do we really trust that if I focus on the spirit, it will bring life rather than trying to navigate the flesh, which brings death? All right, so Balaam was a bad, bad guy in Scripture, and the Nicolaitans, will learn about them, but I want to bring in Pastor Robert Morris, who's actually not here in the building with us, but I want to bring in Pastor Robert Morris because he talks about what these doctrines were and the more specifics, and so rather, and he preached a message on this, and so rather than stealing all what he preached, I'm just going to let him preach it to you, and you can go back and listen to his message sometime if you want to. So Pastor Robert Morris is going to talk to us about how this applies to our life, how this actually was happening then, and how it can apply into our life even in a deeper, more specific way. So let's watch. So I want you to think about this. What is this? Well, first of all, you need to know that uh, Ephesus and Pergamum had the highest number of Gnostics in the church. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know or knowledge. These were people who worshiped knowledge. They actually believed that they had extra biblical, which at that time they didn't have the New Testament except for some letters, but they, and they didn't see those as scriptures, but they believed that they knew things that other believers didn't know. They actually believed that Jesus had appeared to them and told them some things. And John writes 1 John to Ephesus. Some of you might not know that, but 1st, 2nd, 3rd John were written to the church at Ephesus. And he writes to them, and remember, they, they're, they're saying Jesus has told us things. John starts 1st John with, let me tell you something. The things that I'm telling you, I heard from him. I was with him. I walked with him. And he doesn't say this, but he says the things we touch. In other words, I leaned on his breast. I'm telling you what I heard from Jesus. So he's dealing with this thing of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism again, knowledge. Now, I want you to think about this. We say God is, and he is. He is he, God has omniscience. And I've told you before, look at the spelling of it if you want to, but omni-science is the way it's spelled. Omni means all, science means knowledge. I just want you to stay with me. Gnostics worshiped knowledge. The word science means knowledge. We are at a place today in our society where we're being told to worship science to worship science, that science trumps the word of God. Okay, that's idolatry. Now, please hear me. 
I'm not saying we don't learn from science. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that science is bad in itself to learn. I'm not saying that. Our knowledge is. I think you should try and increase your knowledge, but don't worship it. That don't worship it. Now, the Nicolaitans, that's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, uh, some say it was founded by Nicholas, who was one of the first seven deacons in Acts chapter 6, because there was a Nicholas, and Nicholas was a Gnostic, we know that, before he got saved. And some say that the Nicolaitans just use him as their founder because he was a leader in the church and he didn't write anything. He was a deacon, so he wasn't an apostle they could go back to. So we don't know where they got their, their problem, their, their, their theology from. But we know that they participated in idolatry and immorality. But here's how they did it. And I have a very specific burden here, right? Um, they had trade guilds in, in many early cities, especially Pergamon, though. And at these trade guilds, they, ever, they had them every month or every few months. They worshiped a pagan patron. Uh, in other words, uh, so they would worship some god, and they would have a, a time to come together. And because the Gnostics, one of the things the Gnostics believed is that your spirit and body had no connection. So you could do anything in your body and it did not affect your relationship with God. Now, obviously, because of grace, it won't cut our relationship off, but if you think you can sleep around and it not affect your relationship with God, you're deceived. So they were teaching this. So they would have these business uh, get-togethers of business people and they would come together and it was dedicated to a God so they would take the meat that had been sacrificed to that God and eat it. This is, you might say, well, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. The bottom line's idolatry. That's, that's what we're talking about today, all right? But they would knowingly eat the meat because they wanted to fit into the business community, and then there would be prostitutes there, temple prostitutes to that God, and if they stood up for their beliefs, then they could be ostracized in business. So there were business people who would participate in these idolatry and immorality festivals or feasts so they could keep have, have good business relationships in the community. I think this might relate to us today. Because some people have even said to me, well, Pastor Robert, you don't understand. In order to do business, you have to make some compromises. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because God can bless your business. But you have to give him a chance. And the point there is you don't have to compromise. Do you really believe God's ways are best? That you can do it God's way and come out okay. You can, you're going to come out all right. So repenting of done and undone reminds us that God's ways are best. What are some other ways that we can learn from that were going on in the church of Pergamon? Well, you know, as I said earlier, Balaam was a bad guy, but there's still an example for us that we can even learn from what happened in this story because he tried to curse, but only blessing could come out. Did you see that? He tried to curse, but only blessing could come out. He could only say what God said. And so if we want to remind ourselves that God's ways are best, then it's possible we need to get in the habit of repeating 
only what God says. Repeat only what God says. Psalms chapter 19, verse 14. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. There are two things happening there. And we're going to deal with both of them really quickly, but they're both important. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Those are two types of things going on. And so I'll put it this way. If you want to repeat only what God says, the, the first thing is this. Use your inside voice. How many of you parents have had to tell your kids that before? Like, use your inside voice. Well, you know that every one of us has an inside voice, right? You know, psychologists may call it self-talk or something. But it's this, how many of you guys know we all have this ongoing conversation going on on the inside of us, right? And you, you have a conversation that's going on, and, and it's going on a lot of times just as you're going throughout the day. How many of you guys have had conversations with other people who aren't in the room, actually inside of you, right? Arguments, and how many of you guys win every single argument, every single time, right? It's awesome, right? But every single one of us has this conversation going on, it's this running conversation. We work things out in our mind. We have conversations with other people in our hearts. And so a good indicator of what you really believe is not what you pray on Sunday. It's not what you write out on a Facebook post. or It's not what you tell other people. A good indicator of what you really believe on the inside is what's happening in that running conversation, that inside voice. Because anybody can say something, anybody can write something, anybody can post something. But I'm talking about repeating what God says on the inside. I want you to think about the conversations, the running conversations you've had on the inside lately. Can you think about like this past few days or the last week or maybe even on the way here? And what are the running conversations like? Are they repeating what God says towards other people? Are they repeating what God says towards your purpose and your plan? Are they repeating what God says to your circumstances that might be negative? Or quite possibly are we repeating and rehearsing over and over and over again this running conversation of negativity or fear or doubt or frustration or anger or basically anything that's not the fruit of the Spirit? Anything that, what's the running conversation happening? Look back and analyze. That's basically, let me just say it this way. That conversation is basically your prayer life. Because God hears it all anyway, right? It's not what's spoken out loud that's your prayer life. It's the meditation of your heart that's your prayer life. So I want you to think of it, because a lot of times we want to separate those things. No, 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 no. What's happening, that running conversation, your inside voice is your real prayer life. So what's your real prayer life like? What, what's your real prayer life to God like? Because God sees it all anyway. Now, an example of what, uh, of what this is like and what we need to do is something that happened to me this week because I had to go to the hospital this week. And before you feel bad for me, I'll just show you why I had to go to the hospital. Let's go. And this is why I was at the hospital. This is our first grandson. This is Judah. And we were at the hospital visiting him. And this clip has no other purpose but to shamelessly show off my new grandson. So this is Judah. This is why I was at the hospital. Yeah. And, and of course, I've got some other pictures for you guys. So, you know, I've got some other pictures of this guy. 
uh, on Monday. Yeah, there he is right there. Uh, yep, yep, there we go. And then he even made it yesterday to the send with us. And he was listening to Andy Bird preach during the send and flexing his muscles. So it was, it was awesome. Okay, so why did I go to the hospital? Yeah, take it down or I won't be able to preach. So, so I went to the hospital to go visit. And I'm, I'm walking in. And I sit down, and, there's, and I sit down in the waiting room, and I'm, I'm getting ready. I think it was Tuesday, maybe. I can't remember what day it was. Tuesday, and I'm sitting down, and I'm, I got my phone out because I'm like, I was there early. It was about an hour early, and I, they weren't ready for me to come in. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to work on the message, the seven letters to the book of, Reve- you know, in the book of Revelation. I'm going to just start typing stuff out on my phone. And so I'm in that zone. You ever get into like a coffee shop or something like that? You're reading a book or working on something. You can tune most everything out, right? And so I'm in the zone. I'm thinking seven letters, you know, and I'm typing up Pergamum and seven letters, and I'm just working away. And it's like almost I can like hear myself preaching the message, right? And so I'm like, well, maybe that doesn't work for you because you don't preach messages all the time, but I started to like hear myself preaching the message, and so I'm just working away, and I'm like hearing myself preach the message. I'm like, man, that's good, and, and then I realized, wait a minute, no, I'm actually hearing myself preach the message. I stood up, and somebody was playing my message from the last weekend right there in the waiting room on their phone out loud, <laughs> and I'm like, I am hearing myself preach. And so I went over and I said to the lady, I was like, I'm hearing myself preach. And we sat down and we had a good conversation for about a half an hour as I was waiting there uh, for a while. But that's a surreal feeling when you're like hearing yourself preach. And, but, but here's the point of all that. You need to hear yourself preach from time to time. You ought to have an inside voice that you ought to be sitting there just wherever you're at, and at some point, all of a sudden, you start hearing yourself preach. Like, Man, that's good. That's good. I need to be reminded of the goodness of God. See, that's the inside voice that needs to be happening on the inside. That's the meditation of your heart. Some of you need to start preaching to yourself on the inside, so much so that you start hearing it on the outside, which is the next thing, because it's the, the, our mouth as well. We've got to not just use our inside voice, but also use our outside voice. Psalm chapter 62, verse 11 says, David said this. He says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. Now, that's a weird statement, right? Once I have spoken, twice I have heard. I've heard people say it this way, that David said that because he heard God say it, And then he heard him say it. Once I have spoken, but twice I've heard it. He heard God speak it to him on the inside, but then he didn't just keep it on the inside. He spoke it on the outside. That's feeding the spirit over feeding the flesh. Whenever you let that running conversation, you start preaching to yourself on the inside, reminding yourself that God's ways are best, eventually you got to start letting that outside and letting it become into a reality. And the whole point is this, that changing what you say in your heart will change what comes out of your life. If you change the meditation of your heart, you'll change the fruit in your life. And so we're going to receive communion here as we, as we close and the worship team comes back up. I want to close up with this scripture, though. It's the last one there on the church of Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers. Now, this gets kind of weird here, okay? As if the book of Revelation doesn't get weird anyway. But, but it says this. It says, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, there's a lot of 
you know, speculation about what this is. And the truth is, I don't think anyone really definitively knows what this is. We, there's a lot of types and pictures in the book of Revelation. So there's some of it that you just kind of lean into the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, what does this mean for me? I believe, as I was praying for it this week, this is what it meant to me. That you've got hidden manna. What was manna? Manna was God's provision. Remember the Israelites, he provided for them uh, in the wilderness. When they had no food, he provided this supernatural manna. You can look it up. and If you're not familiar with that, he provided supernatural food for them. I believe this represents a relationship with God that is provisional. That in God is everything that we need. And I don't just mean finances. I mean God's ways are best. I mean, if you want to find out how to live the real good life, I mean, you go to God's ways and everything, it's a provisional relationship with God. And then it says a white stone. Well, white represents purity. We talked about that already, but there's a purity. It means I don't need a mixture of the world and God to satisfy me. Just like we talked about last week that I've been bought by Jesus. I've been bought by a price. The world can't afford me. The world can't afford me. God's ways are best. And then it says, he writes on it, that stone, a new name that no one else knows. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, as I was pondering this, I thought, you know, this is really what it's like to have a personal relationship with God. That God has a way to communicate and interact with you in ways that other people don't have. So the question is, do you have stories of God moving in your life? Not other people's stories. Do you have Encounters with God, not other people's encounters. Do you have a relationship with God in a personal way? Not something you heard on a podcast or read in a book. Not something you heard in a sermon or you got a friend of a friend. See, God wants to be the provisional God. He wants to have a pure relationship with you and he wants to have a personal relationship with you. So that, you know, when I went on my sabbatical a few years ago, I went by myself and to Montana, and I felt like I heard God say, I want to have some memories that just you and I have. And I thought, I've never had that thought before, that God would want to just make memories with me. And I believe every single person here, God wants to have some memories that just you and God have. He's that personal. He's big enough to, to love the whole world, but he's personal enough to have memories with you. He's a provisional, pure, and personal God. And so we're going to receive communion. And as we sing this song, it's a new song, I don't think we've done it before, but I just want you to hear the message as we sing this song. And I'm going to do it a little bit different this week, and so I haven't prepped the worship team for this, but... um, we're gonna just we're gonna start the song and sing the song as far as it takes, as long as it takes for you to come and grab the elements and grab a seat. And when I feel like everybody pretty much has a seat, I'm gonna come up and and uh, say some more things and lead us in communion, and then we'll continue to worship. And so let me pray, God. We just come to the table today, and God, we're so thankful that you are a provisional God that on the cross you provided all that we need. Your blood was shed, your body was broken, so that we might experience healing and salvation. And we're reminded of that as we receive communion today. We're also reminded of your victory that that you conquered death, hell, and the grave. And we celebrate that today. God, we come to the table today and we, we repent of those things that we've done, but also the things that we've left undone. And God, we want to remind ourselves today that you are 
that yours, your ways are the best. Lord, let the conversation, the meditation in our heart throughout this week as we, even the meditation of our heart right now, begin to change because that inside conversation that we have when we get saved and we become a new creation ought to be affected by that. So Lord, we say, let it be affected even now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna come to the table, hold on to those elements, and I'll come back up here in just a moment.